0: Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to the first uh, Fiction and Other Minds event of the year. So um, if you haven't been to one of these things before, um, the, uh, the seminar series um, comes out of a collaborative project on the uses of fiction that I'm working on with Nemi Rikotnitz. And we're trying to find, draw as many people together to help us think about the ways in which um, fiction is... Um, a sort of educative space for thinking about the sort of visceral um, interactions um, between human beings. Um, and i um, particularly interested in George Eliot as a sort of... Um, uh, found, that's my phone, sorry. Um, <coughs> um, founding figure, because um, for a number of reasons. She uh, is... Um, apart from being an amazingly clever and astute writer she was someone who was very interested in the um psychology of the time so she's in dialogue with um the science that's available and that's one of the things that we'll see in the lifted veil vale. and she's also interested for this seminar in its comparative role because she is amongst other things very um influenced by her engagement with particularly german culture so as a germanist i'm particularly fond of someone who thinks it's important to read goethe um, and so it's, um, I was very pleased then to persuade both uh, Peter Garrett and Helen Small to um, come along and share their thoughts with us on the lifted veil. Um, Peter Garrett is lecturer in the Department of English at Durham University and was the principal, principal investigator for the Cognitive Futures in the Humanities Network that, with its two conferences at Bangor and Durham in 2013 and 2014, put cognitively informed studies of literature and philosophy firmly on the map in the UK. And the product of that, um, that network is the volume, The Cognitive Humanities, Embodied Mind and Literary Culture, that will hit bookshops next year. Um, okay. Uh, Peter is the author of Victorian Empiricism, Self-Knowledge and Reality in Ruskin, Bain, Lewis Spencer and George Eliot, published in 2010 by Fairleigh Dickinson University Press, as well as lots of other articles on Victorian culture and cognitive criticism. And um, today he's going to be talking to us about mind bloat. Um, so the format is, Peter will give his paper, then we'll have brief um, uh, opportunity for questions of clarification, but we'll delay the substance till after we've heard Helen... And then we'll um, pull our ideas on the lifted bell. So over to you, Peter. Okay. Thank you,
1: Ben, and thanks very much um, indeed for, for the for the kind invitation to to come and talk about this this text in particular, uh, which was which was your suggestion for, for this for the seminar, and I think it's a, a really excellent one. Um, so I'm, I'm proposing this phrase uh, "mind bloat" in this talk. Um, because I want it to resonate in, in, in two particular ways. The first it's a nice word, bloat, I think. Um, one, one might think of it as having a kind of digestive <laughs> a digestive signification, uh, but, but also a kind of facial one in the sense of you know, the, the bloating of the face. Um, but bloat helps to signal a swelling or surfeit in the first, first sense with regard I've got in mind the lift of Veil's concentration on the idea of an individual's surfeit of inner experience. So the sense that there's a kind of engorged inner experience at the heart of the story. And then, in the second sense, cognitive bloat is a a specific coinage found in debates in current philosophy of mind and cognitive science regarding what is known as the extended mind hypothesis, which um, I'll say a little bit about, not, not, not a great deal. Described in the sparest terms, the extended mind hypothesis, advanced by the likes of um, Andy Clark and and others who hold different kind of versions um, of it, claims that thinking and indeed the underlying structure of mind itself can be, and in fact routinely are, spread out across brain, body, and world. So, in a sense, I've got two ideas of bloating. To, to sort of begin with. One is the internalist one, of a kind of expanded inner world. And then a second sense of bloating, which is a kind of externalist perspective, uh, uh, which might be, might be described as a kind of distributed model of cognition. And I want to try and relate Eliot's story to both of these. So... The Lifted Veil meditates darkly on the possibility and impossibility of knowing others. George Eliot's partner, George Henry Lewis, praised it for being, quote, of an imaginative kind, uh, sorry, of an imaginative philosophical kind, quite new and piquant. One could agree with Lewis, I think, by adding that the story has qualities in common with a thought experiment a genre of philosophical narrative in which a process of reasoning is carried out within the context of a well-articulated imaginary scenario in order to answer a specific question about a non-imaginary situation. And that definition uh, comes from a, a fairly recent book on, um, on, uh, um, on thought experiments um, by a writer called Gendler. The narrative of The Lifted Veil does more than than what I've just described, of course, but part of its effect is gained by following through the outcomes of a hypothetical case, as if in imitation of an experimental paradigm. And the narrator, Latimer, understands that his testimony is something akin to a medical case study. He he bequeaths it to future generations for its its interest um, to science. Certainly, the more general idea of scientific experimentation is incorporated vividly into the events of the narrative through the character of Meunier, the romantic man of science who is the boyhood friend of Latimer, whose grisly and secretive act of posthumous bodily revivification marks the climax of the plot. This was, of course, the reason that John Blackwood, Eliot's publisher, thought that she should, um, she should moderate her imaginative vision and cut the scene. Um, she, but he did agree, cagely, that the lifted veil was, quote, full of thought and seemed to draw upon the knowledge of Eliot's scientific friends. she probably had Lewis in mind. In spite of its oddness, Eliot stood by the story long after it was published. In seven, 1873, she wrote to Blackwood, there are many things in it which I would willingly say over again. And I shall never put them in another form. So there's there's, there's a a sense that we should take Eliot's views of the story seriously rather than kind of um, consigning it to a kind of second tier of interest. Today, criticism has come to respect Eliot's view, having once looked upon the story as an embarrassment, as Beryl Gray has said. (laughs) um, It's no longer an embarrassment, I don't think, in Eliot's studies or in Victorian literary studies. Never has more been said and written about The Lifted Veil than presently. Um, there seems to be, in the last sort of 10, 15 years, a considerable increase in interest in the story. One effect of this resurgence has been to close the apparent gap between it and Eliot's major fiction. I think that, that's been part of the project of. Of, um, of readings of the novel has been to, in a sense, integrate it with what we think about Eliot, and in doing so, to kind of slightly revise maybe what we think about Eliot, to to integrate it with our understanding of her novelistic interest in humanism, egotism, feeling, materialism, science, medicine, the relations of mind and body, and so on. And I think that much of this work is is laudable and valuable, and you know, broadly to be kind of commended and agreed with in, in many ways but what I want to do here is actually resist that, that, that way of approaching it and instead to try and actually in the end mark its difference particularly in relation to fictional, uh, fictional minds and the um, uh, question of, of, of relating to other minds um, in fact it, it, it's kind of it's, it's modelling of mind I think is, is actually something which um, we, 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 can, we can see is, 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 almost, is almost parodic I'm going to choose. So let me just recap briefly the story in case there are those in the room who haven't done their homework. You um, pages. <laughs> <laughs> um, so taking the form of a fictional confession or autobiography, the lifted veil is narrated by the first person in the first person, by its gloomy hero, Latimer, a man affected by, and in an important sense, also afflicted with. A special psychological power that he calls prevision. And prevision gives him access to the normally private content of other people's minds and intermittently also allows him to see accurately, it appears, into the future by means of involuntary visual hallucinations. Sickly and sensitive as a child, Latimer discovers these special powers during adolescence and he interprets them at first as a kind of creative gift. His first impulse is to, is to imagine them as if they were a kind of poetic facility, an assumption that reflects his dreamy and wan self-image. He has, he thinks, the poet's sensibility without his voice. In his first attack of prevision, which occurs while he's convalescing, probably sort of in sickliness in Geneva, Latimer's mind conjures a powerful vista of a city, Prague which he is soon to visit with his father. The vision turns out to be vivid, but also sinister and deathly, showing ranks of desireless city dwellers trapped in a condition of of perpetual repetition and monotony. Even so, it gives Latimer a kind of of hope. He thinks that it's a kind of poetic vision. He says, and I quote, for several days I was in a state of excited expectation, watching for a new recurrence of my gift, I sent my thoughts ranging over my world of knowledge in the hope that they would find some object which would send a reawakening vibration through my slumbering genius. Of course, the, the genius here is, is entirely empty of any kind of, of any product, of, a, of any sign of genius. The error of Latimer's interpretation is revealed after a 2nd previsional experience in which his father visits him accompanied by a character called Mrs. Fillimore, uh, Miss Fillmore who's a family friend and neighbour and, and also a strange pale, fatal-eyed woman who's introduced as Bertha Grant. A few moments after this prevision has ended, all three actually do enter Latimer's room making its clairvoyant property instantly obvious. Latimer can't pinpoint his, the cause of this abnormal experience and he wonders whether perhaps it's a brief delirium or madness or disease. Furthermore, after this second prevision, he suddenly begins to see directly into other people's minds in, a, in an involuntary way, acutely aware of their normally hidden feelings and their insecurities. In desperation, he resolves that his visit to Prague will form a kind of test case, confirming whether or not such visions have any correspondence to future reality. And indeed, of course, they do. The visit to Prague confirms his worst fears. The hallucinations have literal or prophetic significance. And all of his visions he takes to, uh, to be signs of real events, just as he um, will experience them, including his own death, significantly, which he foresees painfully and vividly. In other words, he, he has a kind of experiential first-person um, idea of death before death uh, arrives. The narrative takes place in that period of anticipation. The strange woman, Bertha, becomes... Uh, along the way, uniquely alluring to him for the reason that hers is the only mind that he cannot read. The very fact that her innermost thoughts are unavailable to his special faculty ensures that she becomes the focus of his obsessional love. But sadly, she's also unavailable in the more literal sense of being engaged to Latimer's brother, (laughs) Alfred, who um, who is the the precise opposite in terms of temperament and outlook. (coughs) To to the inward Latimer, Alfred is all outward engagement, activity, um, and sporting (coughs) prowess. (coughs) Nonetheless, Latimer has a prevision in which he and Bertha are married, although she, he discovers in this prevision, hates him. She was my wife, and we hated each other. This knowledge doesn't deter him from pursuing Bertha's love, for her enigmatic status is too overwhelmingly enchanting. He says... About Bertha, I was always in a state of uncertainty. I could watch the expression of her face and speculate on its meaning. I could, watch, I could ask for her opinion with the real interest of ignorance. I could listen for her words and watch for her smile with hope and fear. She had for me the fascination of an unraveled destiny. Um, and just to, to wrap up the final part of the, the story, following the accidental death of Alfred, they do indeed marry as the, as the prophecy has it but once this has happened, disaster strikes her previously hidden mental life now becomes transparently accessible to him not only destroying her unique attraction for him but also revealing her to be selfish cruel and manipulative their marriage eventually comes to an end with a macabre twist when a medical reanimation experiment involving the transfusion of blood into a corpse of a servant um, is, is, is attempted with, with sort of Latimer's complicity and Mernier's um, uh, rather secretive genius. The dead body briefly comes back to life, only to re- reveal that Bertha has hatched a plan to murder Latimer using poison obtained by the servant herself. He flees, ending the story in solitude, recounting his life's events and awaiting a death which tragically he's already for- suffered. So I want to. Develop three strands of, of thought out of, out of this story. The first of these is, is in a sense, the most obvious one. What does the story have to say about Eliot's much-discussed idea of fellow feeling or sympathy, which is the um, perhaps the most, the most obvious point of entry? Um, it seems that this is a story devoid of sympathy, as we find it elsewhere in Eliot's writing.) Um, But I think it's interesting that, in a sense, Latimer could be said to exhibit an excess of sympathy if we consult the psychological theories of Eliot's peers, where we can find definitions of sympathy closely resembling a milder version of Latimer's condition. So in The Emotions and the Will, which is a book by the psychologist Alexander Bain, part of Eliot's kind of Westminster Review circle and um, a popularizer and pioneer of mid-Victorian psychology, in that book, The Emotions and the Will, Bain defines sympathy as, quote, the tendency of one individual to fall in with the emotional or active states of others, these states being known through a certain medium of expression. The prolonged misery of Latimer derives precisely from his tendency to fall in with Emotional states of others. People and voices rush in on him unbidden without warning. He's too susceptible in a sense. So, the richness, this sort of unbearable richness of his inner life, is caused by a susceptibility, a kind of feminine susceptibility, one might say. That's how it's, that's how it's marked in the story. His nature is too impressible to the extent that he experiences their emotional states as though they were his own. He says, and I quote, My diseased participation in other people's consciousness continued to torment me. Now it was my father, now my brother, now Mrs. Fillmore or her husband, and now our German courier, whose stream of thought rushed upon me like a ringing in the ears not to be got rid of. Interesting here, I think, is that Latimer couches the phenomenology of hallucination, if indeed that's what it is, in two ways. First, as if it's his own active participation in, inside other people's minds, and then as if it's their intrusive involvement in his own. A ringing in the ears. I'll come back to this point. In Latimer, it could be said this, this sympathetic mechanism is working on overdrive. He's, he's, he's excessively sympathetic. But of course, the narrative tempts us to read prevision as an abnormality and couches it as. Um, as a a, a medical case study or or in diagnostic terms. Variations of the phrase super-added consciousness of the actual are used several times to describe this excessive knowledge of (coughs) other worlds. But this this sort of phrase, super-added, that kind of phrase, turns up in Eliot's realist fiction. The narrator of The Mill on the Floss, for example, uses this phrase. She uh, she or he says, There is no hopelessness so sad as that of early youth where the soul is made up of wants, and has no long memories, no super-added life in the life of others." No super-added life in the life of others, which is all that So the regret there, which is expressed about Margaret Tulliver's unfortunate lack of a kind of sympathetic involvement in others, um, can be translated as meaning um, this, this ability to enter the texture of other people's experience to inhabit their perspectives and problems. Now, I'm going to come back to this sort of question of mind-reading, intersubjectivity, theory of mind, which this, I think, leads leads us into in a second. Um, I'm going to just take up a second strand of thought now before coming back to that. One could think of the story, alternatively, as exemplifying what Christopher Herbert, the critic, has called Victorian relativity. Um, And he... Herbert, in in a book of that name, thinks about a whole range of writers um, from the mid to late 19th century as uh, exemplifying a kind of spirit of relativity um, that that one most immediately would would find in in someone like Pater. The lifted veil, I think, can be read in the light of Herbert Spencer's epistemology, if if people here are familiar with any of Herbert Spencer's work. he has a book called First Principles published in 1855. He goes through many editions. And is an influential um, is an influential account of, of the epistemological principles of his synthetic philosophy, which the rest of his career is dedicated to. The first part of First Principles is called the unknowable and sets out a kind of a set of um, a set of a set of ideas about um, the impossibility of knowing without a kind of relation. Um, knowledge is, is comprised of relations rather than it is of things in themselves. And Spencer's derived this from, um, he's kind of derived it from, from, from a, uh, a Kantian source, but it's come through thinkers like um, um, uh, the Scottish philosopher William Hamilton, in particular. Um, so just thinking about the story in these terms, Latimer's condition doesn't so much signal the abolition of human sympathy as suggest a kind of imagine a kind of world in which the imperatives of relativity have been removed. And in doing so, it, it seems to underscore the necessity of grasping the relativistic conditions that produce knowledge and regulate how we know. Lewis in eighteen seventy eight Uh, when the story was republished. Appears to have have pointed out this dimension of the story to Eliot and Eliot's friend Edith Edith Simcox. According to Simcox's record of this conversation in her autobiography, Lewis said of the main narrative conceit, it is only an exaggeration of what happens, the one-sided knowing of things in relation to the self. The one-sided knowing of... of things in relation to the self. And what's, I think, interesting here is, is, is an idea that the mind is transparent to the self um, who has these experiences. I think that's, that, that, that's, that's as important as the idea that the mind cannot penetrate other minds. Um, to use <coughs> the um, <coughs> philosophy and psychology of, of Bain again, Bain says, each man has the full and perfect knowledge of his own consciousness, but no living being can penetrate the consciousness of another. So, having prevision means that Latimer breaks these kind of principle rules and somehow overcomes relational engagement. Um, now, one of the ironies of the situation is that unlike famous overreaches in Western culture like Faust or Frankenstein, Latimer couldn't care less about the advantages usually associated with increased knowledge. His powers are not gained as a result of clever scheming or bargaining. He doesn't really wish them. He doesn't try and capitalize on them. He doesn't, they don't satisfy a kind of a childhood dream or a burning wish. He doesn't use his powers for profit, financial or otherwise, despite the obvious edge they would give him if he happened to visit a bookmaker or play the markets. <laughs> and Terry Eagleton has sort of explored that in, a, in a, an essay written quite a, a long time ago about speculation as a, as a kind of idea in this story. So Latimer's quest is not to know more. In this respect, *The Lifted Veil* doesn't take up a place in that tradition of, 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 of Faustian overreaching, in which there is terrible punishment for this for this yearning. He can't be accused of hubris, in in this sense, at least. Narcissism, but not hubris. Um, So Eliot's story dwells on the idea that an excess of knowledge is symbolically fatal. If Middlemarch can be described as a novel about humans knowing too little, then The Lifted Veil is about them knowing too much. So Latimer becomes a mockery of the ideal of the detached observer. A miserable version of omniscience, and here I think that there's a kind of there's a literary self-consciousness in Eliot's story because Latimer seems to possess those that that, that kind of ability to access the minds of others, which one would one would see in in um, in omniscient third-person narration. Um, so so that, so there's a uh, th- th- there's an obvious reference to um, to, to, to fictional minds here. Um, only Bertha Grant represents a surviving link to a world where relativity exists. So, as we saw, he's, he's obsessed with Bertha because she embodies the possibility of mystery. Uh, she, she is unknowable. So Latimer's strategy for comprehending his romantic obsession with Bertha is to translate a personal failure into the terms of a public crisis as if it were an epistemological problem for all of culture. He says, Conceive the condition of the human if all propositions whatsoever were self-evident except for one, which was to become self-evident at the close of the summer's day. But in the meantime, might be the subject of question, of hypothesis, of debate. Art and philosophy, literature and science would hasten like bees on that one proposition which had the honey of probability in it and be the more eager, because their enjoyment would end with sunset. So this, in a sense, is a, an account of the, the pleasure of not, of not knowing, the, the, ne- the necessity of desire, and in narrative terms, if you like, the anticipation of retrospect and so on. Um, but ironically, <coughs> since at this point he's become <coughs> locked into an isolated, self-referential world, Latimer eloquently defends Spencer's idea of the relativity of knowledge, I think. Unknowability and doubt are its essential features, and similar kinds of uh, recommendations of, uh, of, of mystery and ignorance, if you like, um, you know, echo through, through various writers like Ruskin. This neatly neatly captures Latimer's destiny: that the elimination of mystery entails death. That is the narrative pattern. Latimer goes on to describe how we need something hidden and uncertain for the maintenance of that doubt and hope and effort, which, in effect, confer meaning and identity upon the world. And this, I think, is wholly compatible with Herbert Spencer's idea of the unknowable, from which everything we know springs. Um, I'm just going to skip forward um, to the third third strand of thought. Um, and this brings us back to Latimer's experience of, of, of other minds. So I want to turn now to, to Latimer's phenomenological characterization of his aberrant mental condition. And uh, I'm just going to quote a passage which is from page 14 in my ancient edition from 2001. Maybe not the one you have. Um, so this is, this is a moment in the narrative that I just want to pay some attention to, where the, the, the quality of his experience is brought into view. I began to be aware of a phase in my abnormal sensibility to which, from the languid and slight nature of my intercourse with others since my illness, I had not been alive before. This was the obtrusion on my mind of the mental process going forward in one person and then another with whom I happened to be in contact, the vagrant, frivolous ideas and emotions of some uninteresting acquaintance would force themselves on my consciousness like an importunate, ill-played musical instrument, or the loud activity of an imprisoned insect. But this superadded consciousness, wearying and annoying enough when it, when it, urged, me, when it urged on me the trivial experience of indifferent people, became an intense pain and grief and it seemed to be opening to me the souls of those who were in cr- a close relation to me. So, there are several points I think that one could make about this, this description of Latimer's direct, supposedly direct access to the minds of, of others. The first is that his visual hallucination of Prague, which has given a lot of sort of narrative attention in, in, in the story and which has in some respects a static or photographic quality is is quite different to to this moment, where the experience of other minds has an (coughs) incessantly auditory accompaniment. It's a heard experience, it's it's an auditory phenomenology. This acoustic, though not necessarily verbal quality, it's described as like an ill-played musical instrument or the noise of an insect, is most clearly disclosed later on in Latin as narrative. Um, Just just a, a few pages later on, he describes how the stream of thought rushed upon me like a ringing in the ears not to be got rid of, though it allowed my own impulses and ideas to continue their uninterrupted course it was like a preternaturally heightened sense of hearing, <coughs> making audible to one a roar of sound where others find perfect stillness. The, the kind of corresponding passage from Middlemarch here would be the one in which the narrator comments about how um, um, uh, it would be undesirable to have a kind of heightened sense of hearing because one's sensory... Uh, um, one sensory experience would be, to, would be overloaded. Would, well, one couldn't pick out uh, uh, an object of attention from, from that kind of noise. Um, it's the squirrel's heartbeat passage from Middlemarch, for those who know it. Um, so, as Sean Gallagher and Dan Zahavi, um, two philosophers, have summarised... The two standard species of theory of mind in current interdisciplinary sciences of mind, namely theory theory and simulation theory, are alike in that they begin from the view that it's impossible to directly experience upper-minded creatures. That, that, That is supposedly why we need to rely on and employ either theoretical inferences, in the case of theory theory, Or internal simulations in the case of simulation theory. I I don't know what the um, people's um, knowledge of of those um, of those ideas are, uh, but we can talk about them perhaps afterwards. Um, So those, I mean, we could just call it theory of mind for the sake of ease. But but some 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 idea of a of a of a a model of, of theory of mind is required precisely because there isn't this kind of direct access. Latimer's condition renders either version of theory of mind redundant. Latimer doesn't need a theory of mind in these kinds of moments, one may think, because he's mysteriously granted precisely the kind of access to this direct experiential level that ordinarily we're not. And yet, two things follow from, from his fictional predicament. Um, one is, that it results in a, a reckless and humiliating fetishization of psychological interiority in the one mind that cannot be accessed, Bertha's, um, and, and creates then the idea that the normative mind would be the one hidden from view, rather than a mind that's disclosed in action, for example, that, 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 that is enacted. Um, And the second point is that the narrator, Latimer, must present an account of what it's like to enter another mind in this kind of direct way or or be entered by another's mind. As I say, it vacillates between these two ideas. Um, And this creates narrative difficulties. How can this be narrated? Um, These are not, one supposes, Latimer's self-generated ideas or beliefs they are the beliefs of others, and yet somehow they are located in his own mind. They're tagged with the intentionality of another. And so in that passage, it's characterized like this, that my own impulses and ideas continued with their their own uninterrupted course, as if they're sort of two two parallel streams of ideas. Um, the, 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 The point is that I think... Um, as Husserl says the phenomenologist Husserl if my access to others' experience is the same as yours uh, sorry, if my access to others' experience is the same as my access to my own experience, if there is an equivalent transparency, then the other mind really in effect becomes no different from my own and becomes part of myself but this is emphatically not not what happens. Latimer retains a sense of the otherness or the alien quality of the mind that intrudes upon his own. So it's not fully inside, even though it's inside, to put it like that. It remains Bertha's ideas, for example, when he he sees into the mind of Bertha and sees all her miserable, selfish thoughts. So there's a question of the ownership of mental states, which which remains a kind of self-other relationship, even though, as it were, location-speaking, now we're inside Latimer's mind. Bertha's thoughts aren't marked by Latimer's mindness, as it were, in the way that his own thoughts are marked by the mindness of his experience. Maybe a better way to think about this would be to say that Latimer is a kind of voice hearer. Um, That's to say, he he's someone who experiences unsolicited voices in his head. The narrative clearly wants to mark his experiences as, as aberrant, um, as, as as hallucinatory, and it seems that, that this is this is one way to to think. Um, the other point I just um, I mean I'd like to say more about sort of voice hearing and how how current theories would 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 would, would, would position voice hearing. Um, or, or, or seek to try and explain it, um, perhaps we can do that in, in, in questions. Um, the other point I wanted to raise is that if we, if we take a view about um, theory of mind that's derived from simulation theory, which is the idea that we, we run a simulation to, to think what it's like to be another, in, in, in really crude terms, um, rather than having a kind of pre-given theory about how other minds are in a particular situation, uh, according to simulation theory, we, we 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 sort of run a we run a simulation, but in which case we run a simulation where we are the self in the predicament of the other, and so it is our it is our own, if you like, interiority that we are predicting, and this I think um, actually gives quite a useful angle on Latimer's um, mind reading. He's Unable truly to enter the perspective of others because he tends to think about others' experience solely in the frame of his own. Now, what the story does, then, I'm going to suggest, is it it opens out, it elongates. I'm mixing my metaphors. It, it enriches. It <laughs> it engorges. How many more can I come up with? The the mentalizing that occurs when the mind is assumed to be at a remove from the other in this kind of internalist model so that it is that which produces a fantasy of intermental access in the story in other words the mind reading that latimer is capable of <coughs> which in the end i think <coughs> serves to reinforce a normal picture <coughs> of the mind as essentially private inward unknowable you know like the, like like his kind of claim on birth And it is precisely because the mind is inward, removed, detached, and so on, that such a thing as theory of mind might be required to explain one's relationship to the other. But I think um, drawing on much more recent uh, ideas of intersubjectivity, social cognition, uh, multidisciplinary approaches to to the the problem of, of other minds, I think we might... Um, begin to see this story as one that that is is offering a parody of of a kind of internalist mind, and that is Latimer's own understanding of his own predicament, and instead is is suggesting, um, I think, that this kind of way of thinking is, is outmoded according to the psychological models that Eliot's working with and contributing to through fiction. Um, so by comparison, what, what would be the, the alternative to a kind of internalist model? Um, well, one in which, um, according to theories of um, primary and secondary intersubjectivity, one in which there's a kind of, uh, rather than a mental picture of the other, a, a, a felt relation through, for example, physical comportment and interaction with the other. Th- there's a glimpse of this in the story, I think, and it happens right at the start. Um, and and it's Latimer's memory of his relationship to his mother I'll just read it I had a tender mother and even now after the dreary lapse of long years a slight trace of sensation accompanies the remembrance of her caress as she held me on her knee her arms around my little body her cheek pressed on mine I had a complaint of the eyes that made me blind for a little while and she kept me on her knee from morning till night that unequalled love soon vanished out of my life, and even to my childish consciousness, it was as if that life had become more chill. I rode my little white pony with the groom by my side as before, but there were no loving eyes looking at me as I mounted, no glad arms opened to me when I came back. So there's a memory of a quite unmentalized Relationship with another mind here, which is one that's physicalized through these through these gestures, um, the loving eyes, which in a glance um, convey another mind, the arms that that embrace, and and so on. These these kind of these kinds of um, um, ready gestures um, that provide what you might call a shared intersubjective rapport or common situation in which in which minds become, become one. Um, so, I'll um, just for the sake of time, I'll leave that there and, and close now with, with a final thought about bloat. So, to come to the, the idea of cognitive bloat, this is a term found in the philosophical literature relating to the extended mind. The extended mind hypothesis, which... Uh, Was, advanced in a seminal paper by Andy Clark and David Chalmers in 1998 um, might be described as a radical, perhaps the most radical version of a group of cognitive theories that go by the name of distributed cognition and also 4E cognition meaning the 4Es of embedded, inactive, embodied and extended. And these theories pose an interesting challenge to classical that is to say, internalist or computational cognitive science. Um, Note that these different theories may not be compatible with one another. Proponents of embodied cognition, for example, may argue that thinking depends on the particular (coughs) vehicular affordances of of the human form and of human movement, whereas proponents of the extended view may say that non-neural artefacts beyond the body if linked up suitably with an agent, can constitute, not merely support, but constitute cognitive routines. So there may be disagreement there about the status of the body and the status of objects and so on. Nonetheless, um, there's there's actually a further further hypothesis which would be called the hypothesis of socially extended mind, and Sean Gallagher's work has has developed this, which allows the category of the non-neural component of cognition to include things like norms and institutions and so on. So the question that's posed in these accounts is where does the mind end and the world begin? A very similar question to the one, I think, that's posed in A Lifted Veil, although for different reasons. In certain paradigm cases in the philosophical literature, the question becomes also where does one mind end and another mind begin? As, for example, in cases of elderly married couples, whose storehouse of memories, in some sense, is distributed across, across the two people, is constituted by their intersubjectivity, um, and is, and is, and is realised in, 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 in memory recall dialogically between them. So memory, in this sense, is, is something greater than the individual mind. The phrase cognitive bloat is used by critics of the extended mind, to describe a fear that the, the view of mind as spread out into the world, beyond the container of the skin and the skull, results in an implausibly vast and decentered picture. So Andy Clark, who is one of the, as I say, one of the main names in philosophy associated with, with this idea, uses the striking rhetoric of, of the supersized mind. He describes the extended mind as a supersized mind. Uh, he's rather good at these, kind of, these kinds of images. Whereas opponents of extended mind theory have challenged it by thinking of it as hopelessly bloated, um, but nonetheless you know, extended in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of distended way. Uh, my contention here is that the fictional case of mental bloat in The Lifted Veil as I say, a different kind of distended mind, I agree, should be seen as an opportunity to consider Eliot's story and her other fiction in relation to 4 e-cognition, and, if you like, broadly speaking, distributed cognition frameworks. Not merely for opportunistic or teleological reasons, I think, but because the language and form of Eliot's novels suppose dynamic and recursive relations between agent and environment between self and group, between organism and niche. The lifted veil, on the other hand, pathologizes an alternative to the insulated and detached mentalizing agent, rendering intersubjective immediacy as a kind of (coughs) auditory hallucination, (coughs) or as this kind of expanded or engorged inner, inner world, this bloated inner world, which the self then hopelessly spectates upon. To put it another way, Eliot's story presents an almost parodic account of internalist commitments to the ego sphere of mind and character. So, if you think back to the story, Latimer is read by a phrenologist early on in the story, which had become discredited pseudoscience by 1859, and he, in (coughs) turn, tries to pass um, facial cues in Bertha repeatedly. He He tries to read these signs um, crossing the gulf between one mind and another, as if these gestures were predictive of underlying beliefs and desires. So, so he's activating a kind of folk psychology, we could say, but, but the story is kind of undermining that folk psychology, I think, with a more of a, what we might think of as a, an active ideal of, of other minds. The point to grasp is that, is that um, these consciously out, the, the consciously outmoded status of these dramatized cognitive styles in The Lifted Veil, especially in the context of Elliot and Lewis's interest in <coughs> biological systems and in complexity theory. <coughs> complexity is a term that Lewis coined. um, show, shows, the, um uh, shows that this story is, 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 um, is, is different, I think, in, in nature from... Uh, narrative models found in, in say, Middlemarch and Daniel de Ronda. Is there not something ironic going on at the start of The Lifted Veil in that opening image of Latimer ruminating despondently by his fireside, and in a sense, echoing you know, a, a Cartesian meditation in, 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 another, in another term? Um, Latimer is locked into a kind of spatialized and locational language of mind, um, but I think the story is, is, is in fact suggesting that this, is, this parodic internalist model is one that's being superseded, and we can see it being superseded in, in Eliot's more mature fiction.
0: Okay, Thank you very much.